Hello, this is the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Right now, Vanguard Court Watch operates in three counties in California, including San Francisco and Sacramento. Our goal is to shine a light on ordinary injustice in the court system. This podcast is hoping to go a step further and shine a spotlight on criminal justice reforms on a national level. One of the goals of this podcast is to highlight cases of what could be called ordinary injustice, stories that may not make national news because they don't rise to the level of grave misconduct, but they have a profound impact on people's lives and erosion of individual liberty. We have on today's program attorney Jennifer Mouses. Back in May, the Vanguard covered the story of Anthony Hernandez. This is a case with, where a less vigilant defense by the defense attorney could have resulted in a prosecution and conviction. Anthony Hernandez was arrested and spent a month in custody because of racial profiling and presumptions by the arresting officer. It might have been far worse had it not been for the persistence of his defense attorney, who kept demanding that the prosecutors turn over body camera footage of the incident from the arresting officer. And once it did it showed that he didn't do anything. So we welcome to the show, Jennifer Mouses. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And thank you for having me on to talk about Mr. Hernandez. Yeah, so can you uh, tell us the uh, story of Anthony Hernandez? So in this case, uh, Mr. Hernandez had gone to a friend's house. Um, The reason he was there is because uh, of another friend who had Uh, passed away uh, and had an untimely death due to suicide. And there were a number of people that night that were there to mourn the death of their mutual friend. Um, It is the police theory that uh, that the people there were gathering just because they were gang members. Uh, Mr. Hernandez was not there because he was a gang member. In fact, Mr. Hernandez had prior to this night and for many months and years before this, uh, decided that the gang life was not for him and had um, repudiated the gang in his life and not uh, been active in any way, shape, or form with the gang. He was there simply to um, mourn the loss of his friend. And um, the police department had become aware of this gathering of people through Instagram. So they decided um, to uh, go in uh, to this party or, or gathering of people um, with four officers. It was their belief that it was gathering of gang members, and it was their further belief that uh, these gang members had guns because they thought they saw a video on Instagram uh, that showed some of the individuals that they uh, could not identify with guns. So they went in with four officers uh, into a gathering of probably 40 to 60 people They sent two officers in through the front of the home on Grand Avenue, and they sent two officers, officers, um, including Officer Bradley and Delgado, through the back, the back alley. And as Officer Bradley and Delgado went through the back alleyway, uh, they saw a person jumping a fence, and that was Mr. Stevens. And Mr. Stevens was detained and found to, in fact, have a gun. Uh, the other two officers came through the front of the house and walked through 
the front gate into the backyard where they encountered Mr. Hernandez uh, and some other individuals in the backyard area. Uh, we, we later found through the body cameras of those two officers that Mr. Hernandez sat down very calmly when asked by officers to do so um, as they walked in the backyard and, and sort of uh, detained everybody uh, that was in that backyard area. What Mr. Uh, what officers uh, Bradley would later say was that instead of seeing Mr. Hernandez sit down calmly, as we saw clearly through the body cameras of the officers entering to the front, Officer Bradley later said in his report that he, through his body camera, saw Mr. Hernandez run to a fence area in that backyard area and discard a gun. Um, we know that isn't true. And we know that because, in fact, when those officers came through the backyard, the two officers that came through the backyard from the front yard area, we know that Mr. Hernandez, in fact, sat down very calmly uh, with a cigarette in his hand and did not, in fact, run to any fence area and throw a gun. And we know that Officer Bradley, when he said Officer, I'm sorry, Mr. Hernandez ran and threw a gun, we know that simply wasn't true. That didn't happen. What but in was- any case. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, what I was going to say was, you know, when I watched the video that you provided me, uh, what was interesting was uh, one of the officers kept saying, I, I, I saw this guy in white. He walked near the fence. Uh, he may have dropped something over. They kept looking for what he may have dropped over. And then they come back to the group and he said, well, there was a guy in white. I don't know who he was. Oh, might be this guy. Oh, yeah, it's this guy or something like that. I mean, it was almost random. Right. So after they find, after uh, Officer Delgado and Bradley uh, detain and arrest Mr. Stevens, uh, Officer Bradley repeatedly says, I, I thought I saw a guy hit this fence, meaning the fence on the west, hand, uh, west side of, of the Grand Avenue residence. Um, and he, he I, I thought I saw a guy with white t-shirts running towards the fence. I, I thought I saw a guy with a white t-shirt hunkered down by the fence. I thought I saw a guy with a white t-shirt maybe try to jump this fence. And, and he repeatedly kept saying, a guy with a white t-shirt did something by that west fence. And uh, his body camera, by the way, didn't show any of that. But he did repeatedly say something like that. For about the next 15 minutes, um, he then walked, interestingly, he walked into the backyard of this um, ha- house where the party was, and he looked at all the different individuals sitting down, and most of them were wearing white t-shirts. Mr. Hernandez, by contrast, was wearing a white, slim-fitting, um, button-down shirt and jeans. Um, and he looked uh, at two individuals, one being Mr. Hernandez and another being a young man with a white T-shirt. And he looked directly at the man with a white T-shirt. And he said, yeah, I, that's the guy I saw go, go towards the fence. And he, he looked at the guy with the white T-shirt and pointed him out. Um, about 15 minutes later, uh, Officer Bradley, still same officer who continually kept talking about seeing somebody at that west fence line, um, he actually finds uh, a gun in the west fence line 
but it's in a sock. So he clearly never saw anybody throw a gun. He saw maybe something in the sock, something white being thrown at the fence line, but not a gun. Anyway, he finds the gun, and he turns to uh, officer right next to him, Officer Anderson, and he tells him, uh, I want to get it right, um, I, look, I really don't have any idea who threw this. And then he turns around and he points to Mr. Hernandez's back. Now, Mr. Hernandez has now been moved very close to the fence line. He wasn't there before. He was moved by officers. So he's now pointing at Mr. Hernandez's back, not even at his face. And so he goes, I, I really have no idea who threw this to, to an officer very quietly. I don't think he realized we were going to get his body camera lately, later. And he goes, ah, him. Yeah, sure. You know, it's probably him. And whereupon they stand Mr. Hernandez up, turn him around, and arrest him for that gun. When it was clear that uh, Officer Bradley had no idea who, who threw that gun. And he was just sort of picking Mr. Hernandez randomly out of the group by picking him out. By, you know, shining a light on his back and not even looking at his face. He had actually picked out a completely different person 15 minutes prior. Um, but he found a gun and he had to take somebody to jail. And so he just picked out one of the guys. And when he talked to Mr. Hernandez and he, he said, well, you know, Mr. Hernandez said it wasn't me. I, I don't know why you're arresting me for this. And uh, Officer Bradley said, well, dude, I caught you on, on body camera. And Mr. Hernandez repeatedly said, please play it back. It wasn't me. I, I beg you, play this back. And Officer Anderson, uh, Bradley said, uh, basically, that's the way it goes. So sorry. And took him to jail. And what's interesting is that after this point, uh, at what point did you get involved in the case? I was, I was contacted almost immediately by my um, client's family. Um, I had known the family, and so they brought me into this case uh, almost immediately and, and had known that uh, Mr. Hernandez had not done this and were adamant that I should intervene and see what I could do. And I, I was um, very persistent from the beginning. Um, I, I have worked as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney, um, and I do know um, you know, what evidence can be gathered to prove innocence or guilt, right, on both sides. So I knew that there would be body-worn cameras, and I knew there would be in-car cameras, and I was very insistent from the beginning that we needed to get these very quickly. Um, and it would show one way or the other if Mr. Hernandez was telling the truth or not. And uh, it, this case was one of the more interesting cases I've ever had because the Sacramento um, District Attorney's Office, after the Stephon Clark shooting, um, took the policy um, right before this case started that they were going to give out the body-worn cameras uh, sort of on demand right away. And they did. But what was interesting is two things. Um, one that I don't think Officer Bradley realized at the time this event occurred, truly realized that we would be getting those cameras. Um, 
and because I don't think he would say things like, honestly, I have no idea who threw this gun very quietly to a fellow officer right before he randomly picked somebody out in the crowd to arrest. I think if he knew that the defense would get the cameras in a few days, I don't think he would have said that out loud. When I requested those cameras, I was given every single camera except for Officer Bradley's camera. Um, that camera was missing, and the district attorney could not explain its absence and told me that they had to send a district attorney investigator out looking for it. It was missing. And I continued to write the DA and say, I need this camera. All the other camera angles are indicating to me that Mr. Hernandez is innocent. And it all hinges on the credibility of Officer Bradley. And I need to see Officer Bradley's body-worn camera because it all hinges on what he saw. And the only way I will know that is seeing his body-worn camera. Please get it to me. Um, Officer Bradley's body-worn camera was missing for 29 days. And uh, that is despite the fact that they were sending out DA investigators to find out where it was. And as I understand it, and, and what I believe we will find through discovery in the federal um, civil lawsuit is, I believe that the only way that camera um, footage could be uh, hidden is if Officer Bradley kept the body-worn camera in such a place that it would not go to the department um, docking station to upload. In other words, I believe he never brought that body-worn camera back to his department um, because if he did, it would have uploaded to their system. So I, I, I believe it was – there's a good reason why it wasn't uploaded. And, and it is very suspicious to me that that is the one body-worn camera that was not there for 29 days. So there are a lot of really interesting aspects to this case. And I think, you know, the first thing I would say is that a lot of people are going to look at this case and go, okay, what's the big deal here? But, but there is a big deal here, right? It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. As soon as I received this body more camera, I, I watched it. I wrote to DA an email saying, look, you have to see this this camera angle, you have to, so eventually, after sending out the DA investigators long and hard enough, they found it, and the DA's office, I wrote an email, I think an hour or two later, the DA uh, asked me to call him, it had gone all the way up the chain of command, all the way to their bureau chief, and this case was dismissed. Mr. Hernandez was in custody for over a month, wrongfully. For a crime, he, not only was he not guilty of, he was innocent of. He had not committed a single crime. He was put into custody for gang crimes, felon in possession of a firearm, you know, possessing bullets. And, you know, he was arrested because he was, you know, the Hispanic in the wrong place at the wrong time. And if that doesn't scare people, I don't know what should scare them. Uh, it, to me, it is a relevant um that he, if he had ever been arrested before, to me, it just made him all the more vulnerable uh, to these attacks. You know, it, it truly is astonishing to me that you can be accused of crimes that you are 
100% innocent of and because somebody wears a piece of tin on their chest, their their opinion or their words are more heavily weighted and can keep you in custody wrongfully. Uh, it, it's frightening. I mean, if somebody is guilty, then fine. But if they're innocent and being held wrongfully, that's, that's not acceptable. So it's I think... I, I think there there are a couple of key questions here. The first thing I, I I think you should let people know is what's his exposure? What's he facing if he gets convicted of this stuff? I'd have to go back and look at his exposure. I mean, felon in possession of a firearm is probably uh, maximum three years in the state prison. But when you start adding the gang enhancements to it, um, it, it depends on which way they charge it. I'd have to go look at that. But, you know, more years. I mean, you know, that's usually, you know, anywhere three, four, five, ten years in the state prison. But any any time in prison, a day in prison is too much. It, it, it doesn't matter. One day in prison is too many. Mr. Hernandez lost his job. He has kids. He lost his time with his children. You know, he's got a family. He lost his time with his family. To me, it's really not a matter of his prison exposure. It's the fact that he was taken, you know, from his home and kidnapped and put in custody where he shouldn't have been. That's really more the issue in my mind. Understood. Um, But I'm just trying to put it into perspective for people that might not be familiar. I mean, these things can add up. Yeah, prison exposure is, is horrible. I mean, it's years in prison. I, I really would have to go back and, and look at what the exposure was, but it's years in prison. And then if there's no body-worn camera in this case, what do you think your prognosis is for... Uh, he been, I, I think he would have been convicted. And I'll tell you this. The Sacramento Sheriff's Department refuses to wear body-worn cameras. They refuse to execute searches with other agencies who have body-worn cameras. Um, that, that's a problem. That is a huge problem. Think about that for a minute. That, that if Mr. Hernandez hadn't had the benefit of an agency who is on some level holding their officers accountable, he would be in custody, probably in the state, you know, prison right now. And I'm bringing we this have up. Agencies here that will not put body cameras on their officers from the top down, from Scott Jones to the lowest officer. They will, he will not hold his officers accountable. Not only will he not hold his officers accountable, he will not allow his officers to to execute search warrants with officers from agencies who are held accountable. And you have to understand that's because he doesn't want his officers, you know, caught doing whatever it is they're doing. That's terrible. So one of the reasons I'm bringing this up is that there continues to be a debate in the criminal justice uh, field as to how helpful these things are. From from my perspective, at least, you know, being able to see what happens in the field is invaluable, whether whether or not it makes a difference. Well, I think it's totally helpful. Um, I fail to see how it's not helpful. I, I understand the, the counter argument. Um, I think it would be, uh, you know, probably the counter argument, right, is that it can't capture 
everything and that in so much as it doesn't capture everything, it's sort of deceptive that way. It's the same argument we saw Anne Murray make when talking about the Stephon Clark shooting, right? Is that just because you have a body-worn camera doesn't mean it's capturing everything that the human eye can catch. And so, you know, um, you have to allow the fact that it doesn't see all that the human eye sees. However, it can see things that the human eye can't see. It can capture things that you may not notice um, in, in that split second, and it can provide invaluable information um, about things. And in so much as it does, um, and it provides the recording of events in real time, I think it is incredibly important, and it does provide accountability in situations. I'm personally aware of incidents, um, even, you know, on a personnel level that it assists departments in on a, you know, on just levels where, you know, where officers out on calls and uh, to see how the call was handled for training purposes, you know, it's important, but also, you know, to give that level of confidence uh, in the community. For police officers, I think it's important, you know, so that when something occurs and, and the community doesn't know how quite to react, um, the department can come out and say, hey, look, here's what our officers did. We want you to see. That's important. I mean, we have a real problem um, right now between law enforcement and the community in terms of trust. And I think that's a way that we can um, bridge that trust. So I think I think they're invaluable, and to the extent they don't capture everything, you know, that's something we can talk about. But I don't think that means you throw the baby with out with the bathwater. Well, what I would say is my eyes don't capture everything. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, driving home uh, in Davis, and uh, all of a sudden, I I looked to my left, and there there are two vehicles that had just been in a crash. And I have a dash cam on my car. So later I, I went and I I couldn't figure out why I didn't see the car's crash. And so I watched the dash cam and realized, oh, the reason I didn't see it uh, happen was it was way off in the distance when I was driving up. And I only drove up when I saw the aftermath of it. But, you know, it's just one of those things. Your, your eyes are not trained on everything, whereas the ca- uh, the camera captures a lot more than than your mind does, I, I, I'm sorry to say. Right, right. And, you know, I, I just think that those cameras, you know, from our perspective, from a criminal defense perspective, you know, it does allow for us to see, you know, events as they occur um, that either support the defense theory or, quite frankly, helps us talk to our clients and, and tell them, hey, you know, it doesn't appear things happened as you're telling me. So let's talk about that. What does that mean? You know, it, it, and maybe convince our client or talk to our client about um, being more realistic, perhaps, in, in uh, what the case and the evidence means. Um, I, I think that I am a big fan of more evidence is better on both sides, bring in all the evidence and then, you know, let it, you know, let the chips fall where it may. 
And body-worn cameras are part of that. Let's bring it all in. Let's all understand the truth, and then let's deal with it. So the so other aspect I, I'm a huge fan of it. to this case is that it was really your persistence uh, that forced that last camera out. If you had been another attorney, perhaps, uh, you might have said, oh, okay, maybe maybe his camera wasn't working or something and just let it go. And, you know, without that camera angle, again, he probably uh, gets convicted on this. Right. So I've been a sole practitioner um, since I've uh, been in private practice. So I can't speak necessarily to what other people may or may not do. Um, I, I do know that I am very persistent, probably uh, too persi- persistent from some people's perspective. Uh, but um, I definitely push the bounds of persistence in this case. I was, um, I, particularly once I got the first body-worn cameras and I watched them, and they were all long. I mean, there were a lot of officers who showed up, and each camera was probably an hour and a half long of sitting there um, and really uh, sifting through what each officer did and comparing it to what another officer did and their camera angle. So this was an, a labor-intensive and uh, a concentration-intensive uh, endeavor. But having done that and knowing, you know, what Mr. Hernandez was saying compared to what those cameras were showing, I firmly believed he was telling me the truth and that I needed that last piece of the puzzle. And I I also firmly believed that there were nefarious reasons why I didn't get that last piece. So I was um, unwavering. I would not stop asking for it. And um, I was very cognizant. I, I knew he was in custody and I wanted him out. Um, and it was getting close to the holidays. So, yeah, um, I would hope everybody would be that persistent. Um, I'm not sure everybody would have been that quick because <laughs> I, I really, um, in our demands of the city, which quite frankly, they just, you know, denied and we will be filing a federal civil rights lawsuit very shortly. Um, I detailed the number of demands I made and the time frame I made them in. I'm, I'm not sure everybody would have made them that quickly, but maybe. Um, but it certainly did pay off because I got them out before the holidays, um, which was a feat since this happened on September 21st. Um, it was hard to get them out before Thanksgiving, but I did. And I am very glad for that because if I had not done that, um, I am certain I I am certain he would not have gotten a dismissal if I had not pressed on for that final body camera. I can say that for sure. And I'm assuming you never got an explanation for why that one camera was so delayed. No. No. In fact, I was not even told about the dismissal in writing. Uh, the DA asked me to call him. And I was told over the phone, I don't, you know, I, I can't really speak to their frame of mind, but it was my impression that they didn't even want to put it on paper that they were dismissing the case. Um, just simply that, you know, please give me a call, which I did. And uh, I was told, you know, we'll be dismissing the case at the court date tomorrow. And I, you know, was ecstatic and said, thank you. And 
went to the court date and happily accepted the dismissal. But no, no explanation was forthcoming. And I didn't ask for it. Um, I'm not entitled. I knew they wouldn't give it to me. And I wanted very badly to get that dismissal and, and get Mr. Hernandez out of custody. And now you've filed the lawsuit. So can you explain that, what you guys are looking for? Well, we are, we're actually on the brink of a lawsuit. We filed the um, demand with the city. Um, we've been going back and forth with the city for months, and they have now formally denied our claim, which is the lead-up to the actual lawsuit. So we're now uh, preparing our complaint to be filed um, here in Sacramento at the federal level, um, and it'll be a federal civil law, uh, federal civil lawsuit um, with, you know, all the uh, civil rights violations. We'll also include state claims on behalf of Mr. Hernandez, but essentially, you know, we'll allege that they violated his civil rights, which they most certainly did. This was absolutely race-based. I mean, the whole reason they were out there um, was that this was well, they say Norteño, I'm going to say Hispanic party. Um, and that they literally just, he was just Mexican at the wrong place at the wrong time. And um, it, what they did was unconscionable. But he had no reason to believe Mr. Hernandez committed a crime. None. I've watched the videos again. I've looked for any reason to believe that they, it, that he committed a crime, I, I still find none. And um, so we, we will be seeking the appropriate amount of damages for that. Do you think this type of thing is commonplace? Uh, no. I mean, no. I don't think officers regularly arrest people for no reason. I At least I don't want to think that. Um, whether it is, I guess we'll find out more in, in these days where we have body cameras and we can compare the body cameras to the police reports. Um, but I know hundreds, if not thousands, of police officers. And I think, like every other profession, the vast majority are good people. Um, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but I don't think the vast majority lie. This, this case is, I mean made up of whole cloth. You know, this is just a lie. It, they go through and they say, I positively, the, the same officer who a number of times throughout, I saw a male Hispanic adult wearing a white t-shirt. I thought I saw, male, you know, a white t-shirt. The same guy who 10 times over talks about a guy in a white t-shirt after he picked out Mr. Hernandez by shining a light on his back and saying, nah, you know, I have no idea who it is. That's uh, probably this guy. After after that, that same officer repeated probably four or five times to other officers. I saw a male Hispanic adult in a white button-up collared shirt run to that fence and throw a gun. That's what he said after he looked at my client and what he was wearing and had him arrested for that gun. The same one who repeated over and over and over again a guy in a white T-shirt before he had my client falsely arrested. You know, it was a white T-shirt. After he had him falsely arrested, it was a male Hispanic adult in a white button-up colored shirt run and throw a gun. So I don't think the vast majority of officers make up stories like that. But this one did. 
And what do you see as the overall lesson for the system? If you, if you lie, if you create a false police report, if you claim evidence, if you make up a false report to get a crime statistic, which is what I think happened here. I think they had nine guns and two ounces of cocaine, and they didn't have enough bodies to take to jail. That's my gut feeling about this case. They did this haphazard, you know, search at a big party. They found a bunch of guns, some drugs, and they did it so poorly executed that they didn't have enough people to take to jail. So if you lie and you make stuff up and you have people wrongfully arrested and taken to jail, um, technology is catching up and and you're going to get caught. And, you know, your time is running short for doing things like that. That's the lesson. You can't do those things anymore. Great. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you very much. So that was Jennifer Mouses uh, talking about her client, Anthony Hernandez. An amazing story. And this is really, in a lot of ways, the poster child case for body-worn cameras. This is a guy that likely you heard her, her talk Without that body-worn camera, without that footage to contradict the statement of the officer, this is a case where an innocent man would have been convicted of a crime and he probably would have gone away, I would guess, at least 10 years, um, give or take. And the technology and the persistence of the defense attorney prevented that from happening. And I have a little bit more of a jaded view. I see these kinds of cases a lot. Not necessarily out-and-out dishonesty. Sometimes it's a mistake by the cops. But in the end, a lot of these cases, a lot of uh, ordinary injustice happens in the criminal justice system because the officers make assumptions that they cannot back up with the facts. Thank you for tuning in. This has been the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald.